So I'd like to make two suggestions. One pertains to our formal meditative practice. It's called settling in meditative equipoise, or a close approximation of that. And then the other is in our post-meditative experience. So first of all, for the, um, for the practice itself, I've just about finished translating the third of these essays on the interface between Dzogchen, Mahamudra, and Madhyamaka. And this again was a text suggested to me by us all, and this was my root, root lama that I should translate it. And judging by the style, the terminology, the way, the way of presentation, my very strong assumption is I think all of the authors are Galupa. Because <laughs> I've read a fair amount of Dzogchen, and it's not the same. And it's not, if you think that was deprecating, it's not. It's just a different style. It's simply a different style. They have, I mean, it's almost like left brain, right brain, right brain to use a cliche. One of the very interesting things that keeps on cropping up again and is, number one, every single one of the authors writes with tremendous reverence, reverence, reverence regarding Dzogchen. I mean, they're referring to it as the supreme, the supreme yana, the highest, the highest. Uh, and so there's just, there's just, there's no debate there, like, okay, well, who's it going to be, Galupa or Dzogchen? It's really emphasizing which is what is incredibly sublime and profound teaching it is. And one point that comes out repeatedly, and, I, and, I, and it's interesting, it's coming out from the Galupas, because one might imagine there would be some real debate here, and there just isn't. And that is, and I've seen this also in the, in, from Padmasambhava, Dujum Lingba, but that's just absolutely, you know, 100% Dzogchen. The point here is this that if one is, now this is kind of advanced practice, uh, but in stage of, in highest yoga tantra, in the stages, first of all, stage of preparation, where it's really preparing, it's, it's tuning up your whole system so that you can take full advantage of and have the full transformative, transformative power of stage of completion. Completion is what really delivers the goods. <clears throat> stage of generation is preparing you so you can deliver the goods with stage of completion. And <clears throat> in stage of completion, Actually, in both, <clears throat> they are effortful paths. They are effortful. That is, you're visualizing a lot, and that's not easy. And you're doing, you're doing mandala, you're doing the, um, the, the mantra, you're probably doing some mudras, you may have other ritual practices, uh, but visualization, visualization, and if you go into stage of completion, especially if you're doing the, going into the dummo practice, which is classic stage of completion practice, there's not only visualization, but, um, you know, see the movie Yogis of Tibet, and you'll see what, you know, this is like Navy Seals or Green Berets. I mean, it, you look at that yogi who's doing the Bepchen, and he's really buff. I mean, he could be going out for the Olympics, you know. That'd be another, another entry for the Olympics. Uh, um, they're very demanding, very demanding. And what you're doing, especially in Tumo, without giving, any, any, giving away any of the trade secrets, is by the power of your breathing, specific pranayama, salum practice, visualization, and also these tungkor, or adisara, they're called in Sanskrit, the exercises, uh, in a very <clears throat> effortful way. I mean, it's strenuous, very demanding. It's really better for 16-year-olds. If you're my age and you're starting, don't even think about it. Not going to work. <laughs> We're over the hill. If you've been doing it for the last four decades, then you can continue. But if you're not, forget about it. Too late. But that's not a problem. The point here is that the central function, the purpose of these practices, and this is generic, not just for Dumo, but five stages of Goya Samaja, the stage of completion, and so on, is that you are using, with your visualization, breathing, possibly physical exercises, you are really, of course, seeking to bring this, the energies into the central channel, into the heart chakra, and into the indestructible bindu of the heart. That's it. Why? To realize the innate mind of clear light. And that's just classic new translation school method and terminology. Now what's interesting here from these Galupa scholars, and you can see they're true blue scholars, I mean they're really true blue Galupas, they're, you know, they're, they're troopers, Galupa troopers. <laughs> and they're writing about Mahamudra, which is primarily in the Gagyupa camp. I mean they really, they almost own it, you know. And the Nyumapas pretty much own Dzogchen. Um, what they're saying is this. That this practice of Dzogchen, and, and a lot of the comments about Dzogchen pertain directly over to Mahamudra as well. It's it's effortless. Effortless. And here's the real point. And I read this from, you know, and His Holiness recommended this text. He's not going to recommend it if he feels the people writing are flaky. Clearly. And he said, without reliance upon the effortful, effortful 
Salmon practices, the visualizations and so forth of stage of completion or of the Deva Yoga, the, the Deity Yoga of stage regeneration, the practice of Dzogchen can take you to the same place. That's interesting. Now, Dujal Lingba says the same thing. But if it's a Nyamapa, you might think, oh, okay, there's going to be a point of contention. Galupa say this, Nyamapa is now to debate, 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 you know. It's not, not a debate. So that's encouraging, and that is especially for us who are over the hill. <laughs> you know? We're no longer young, you know. Uh, that we don't have to be, you know, fit as a fiddle, like ready to, you know, work out for the, the Yoga Olympics. Uh, there's, a, there's another way. It's complementary. At the same time, the, it is necessary one way or another to get this, <clears throat> this prana system, this lung system in shape. And if you're a Tibetan nomad or a farmer or whatever, living out there in Kham and Amdo or even out in Tsang, you know, I'm sure you have some work to do. But if you're from Berlin, you know, Rio de Janeiro and so forth and so on, we have a lot more work to do. Because we're really screwed up, you know. This whole modernity is just is not good for the nervous system. It's a very weird and kind of bizarre experiment we're running on ourselves, you know, for many many reasons. And I'll allude to that a little bit later when I get to the post-meditative point. But here it is: we have to energetically, physically, on a subtle energy level, we got to get our act together. Because we say, no, nah, no, nah, never mind, you know, that's you know, it, it's okay. And now let's just forge ahead. I've watched. I've been watching for 45 years. It doesn't work so well. You really got to balance out. Got to balance out. Got to balance out like a Tibetan nomad or like a Tibetan farmer who's been living that way for the first 20, 30 years of the life and then comes into the monastery and starts practicing Dzogchen. We need to be there because these are the ones. We're still here in Tibet. Still in Tibet, we're still hearing of people achieving rainbow body. It's not ancient history. One of my teachers, Gidamala, one of my revered teachers, her uncle achieved rainbow body. She said, she's, abs she's absolutely perfect integrity. There's just no way she could be confused on that point. And those, I cannot even conceive of her saying something that was not true. She's not capable of doing that. So this is still happening. But it's not happening with the nervous systems like what we're bringing to the table. You know. And so, and not many of us, I mean, some youngsters, where's Inigo? Where's Inigo? Yeah, he's got a chance. <laughs> he's got a chance. He could be doing that if he wanted to. It's a choice. You could be doing that if you want. You're young enough. Amy, forget about it. <laughs> no. So we need to balance out the nervous system. Because when you're practicing authentically, and here's this straight path, it's a straight path in the text we will be soon studying. And it's so clear in the Dujum Lingma, the Padmasambhava teachings, the, the core indispensable elements, you know it, just the first three weeks, we don't have to be concerned about the fourth for the time being. Shamata, Vipassana, Tekchut. Shamata, Vipassana, Mahamudra. There it is, straight line. Augment it in any way you like. We're going to be augmenting it with Avalokiteshvara practice. It could be Tata practice. It could be Yamantaka practice. It should be Guru Yoga. But Guru Yoga should come in. So that's what's core. And we'll see that this is largely a non-conceptual path. The Galupas, generally the New Translation schools, are very, very keen on Chekgum, Chekgum, analytical meditation. His Holiness, my root guru, he just, I think it's no exaggeration to say he adores, adores the, the analytical meditation. He's been doing it, like, the last 70 years or so. And boy, it's worked. I mean, it's really worked. I mean, just look at it. It worked. This is a person who's been spending most of the last seven years of his, of his time in practice practicing the analytical meditation. The Lam Rim, the state of generation, the state of completion, the five stages of Goya Samaja, and so forth. And boy, if you've got the body-mind for it, it works. To my mind, there's just no debate there. You want to debate it? Debate with somebody else, not me. right? At the same time, as I've been translating these essays, they're saying, on this path, this Mahamudra Dzogchen path, it's more Jokong, Jokong, the stabilizing meditation. The simply placing the non-conceptual meditation. And the work can still get done. But there's a very, very special sequence to it. And again, we've got to get the, the prana system in shape. We can't bring this bent, torqued out, stressed out, congested, prana blocked at the heart kind of problems and say, oh, this is going to work out fine. 
It's not. It's not going to work out fine. It doesn't work out fine. But if we take this one and say, well, let's just muscle our way through, and let's try this stone practice, and I'm going to do these breathing, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to bear down, and so forth, it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. And so, if there were, I'm choosing my words very carefully, this is a, a, a counterfactual, hypothetical, if there were. <laughs> Be very careful here, because I'm not trying to start a new tradition. But if there were such a thing as Dzogchen Pranayama, Dzogchen Salum practice, that is specifically Dzogchen, not state of completion, not Dumo, not in, you know, just Dzogchen, <clears throat> it would have to be in the mood of Dzogchen, the, the mood of Dzogchen as a whole, and that is effortless. It would have to be. If it's effortful, it's just not Dzogchen. Dzogchen, it's Zurme, effortless, just releasing, Rangdu, naturally releasing. So we have all these knots in our system, right? Knots in the chakras, knots in the heart, knots in the throat chakra. I mean, I've been listening to you. I mean, it's knots here, it's knots there. You're all very naughty. <laughs> <laughs> and those knots have to unravel one way or another, right? And I'm not here to teach sorrow. I'm not here to teach It's a magnificent practice, but that's not where it, where it, it's, not taught, it's not taught here, in the, uh, as if there's a book here. Um, you know, space to path for freedom, it's not there. It's not, it's, it's, it's not one of the phases. <clears throat> so you may probably have surmised where I'm going here. What's a Tsalung practice? A practice involving the channels, the energies, that is entirely effortless, that allows as settling the mind in its natural state, allows the blockages to release themselves, and your mind to release itself and dissolve in the subject consciousness. And on the deeper vein, when you're just simply resting in rikpa, and your mental afflictions altogether are dissolving, melting into the facets of primordial consciousness. They're becoming detoxified, and they're self-detoxifying, self-releasing. That's the whole mood. That's the mood of Dzogchen. Well, similarly, we have blockages, we have knots, we have constrictions, warping, warping, as in klishta, as in glesha, in the body. And so what type of breathing technique could simply allow these blockages in the body, in the subtle body, to release themselves and release and release and release? Well, it's got to be in the same vein. It's going to be mindfulness of breathing. What else could it be? It's not going to be this or this or, or you know, all of the kind of constrictions. I mean, I, that, I was not ridiculing that. Those are different practices, but they're effortful. Not going to be that. That's, not so, that's just not the mood of Dzogchen. And so, let's regard this practice of mindfulness of breathing as egoless breathing, effortless breathing, so soothed, so gentle, the motivation so sweet, so benevolent, so kind, so undemanding, so not pushy, not goal-driven, not striving, but just releasing, surrendering. And as you, you recall from Shaladeva, what, day, two days ago? Surrendering everything all at once, that's nirvana, right? <laughs> so let's surrender. Surrender all control over the breath. And it's very easy to say. Want me to say it again? Surrender all control over the breath. Now that was easy. I bet it'd just be, it'd be just as easy if I say it three times. It's kind of like, you know, telling anybody, okay, Roberta, if Roberta says, I'm feeling a lot of tension, well, stop that, just relax. Next. Anybody else want some advice? How did that work out? <laughs> it didn't work out. Well, try harder, stupid. <laughs> I mean, relax right now, and I mean it, you know. Like that. We can't just turn it on. We can't. It's to breathe egolessly is not so, oh yeah, sure, I'll do that, and just do it. We need a technique. We need a technique. And there is a technique. And here it is. You ready? I've taught it, and I'm going to highlight it, shine a really bright light on it. As I've often said innumerable times by now, the key to the respiration, the key to the practice, is the out-breath. Remember that one? And the key to the out-breath is? Very good. The key to the out-breath is the end of the out-breath. Now what does that mean? It's the key to the key. What does that mean? And that means every time you're coming to the end of the out-breath, don't talk through it. It's like listening to some beautiful music, 
uh, like an Angelica Segovia playing some magnificent guitar music, and he's coming to the end, and you're hearing the final notes, and right when you're hearing the final notes, what do you think about his performance? Really good. What do you think? I think it was really great. And what do you want to go for dinner? I think maybe, you know. And that's how you end the piece. You know, he would get off and strangle you if you were in a bad mood. So don't talk through the end of the piece. Because you're approaching the sweet spot. You're approaching the sweet spot. And if you talk through it, you'll miss it entirely. Just like you'll miss the end of the piece if you just talk right through it and you're going through your, your, your schedule or what have you. The end of each and each the end of each outbreath, the very end of it, that's the time when you want to be pin drop silent in your mind. No memory, no chit-chat, no nothing. Just be quiet and be still and be very attentive that in fact you're releasing that breath to the last drop. You won't. If you talk through it, you won't. I can almost guarantee you won't. And your breath will not settle in its natural rhythm. How we get into this problem in the first place is rumination, congestion, all the, the tightness, the constrictions, the upheavals within the mind from our emotions, our driven thoughts. You remember that mind that is distracted dwells between, the person whose mind is distracted dwells, dwells between the fangs of the mental afflictions. And so this is how the whole nervous system gets screwed up in the, in the first place. It's not really outside stress. It's not really outside trauma. It's not to trivialize that. I mean, there's outside trauma that's incredibly intense. Nevertheless, it's catalytic, and nevertheless, not everybody gets stressed out. Yang Dan Rinpoche in a concentration camp, that's stressful. It wasn't stressful for him. He said, oh, I was, I was happier inside the concentration camp than most people outside. That's what he said. Yeah. 19 years concentration camp. Okay. So, well, it's incredibly stressful. Yeah, for most people, but not for him. Therefore, it was only a cooperative condition, but it was not the primary cause, because he didn't have the primary cause in his mind. And the primary cause is the one that goes like that, goes into, in, into seizure of mental afflictions, which, of course, very natural. It takes dharma to you know, get out of that habit. So there's the key. The end of every mouth, be very, very quiet and keep on releasing, releasing, releasing. It's subtle. It's subtle. And that's what, what it's very easy to do is, okay, he said, release, release, release. And I'm going to do a cartoon. Okay. He said, release, release, release. <laughs> that was a cartoon, but you get the message. Don't push. You know, don't push. It would be more like, and I'm not going to do it, but imagine having, this is a glass of water, and, and all the water flows out. You're not going like that. You just tip it over and all the water flows out, right? To the last drop. If it's like that, to the last drop, it all flows out. So it's like that. Let the breath flow out as if it was in a cup and it just, you just tipped it over and just go. Don't hold any reserve. Don't, any, don't, don't be afraid. Let yourself be vulnerable. Because when your breath is all out, that's actually quite vulnerable. If somebody comes and puts their hand over your mouth and nose, you're dead pretty quickly. But nobody's going to do that. <laughs> so you can relax. You know. If you're inclined to do that, you have to leave right now, because I just promised everybody, nobody, you know, that's not going to happen. And so it is subtle, but not too subtle. Don't push. Don't push it out at all. Don't hold anything in reserve. And then when it comes in, it comes in as a gift. There's no pulling that. When it comes in, you simply allow it to come in, but you don't have to pull it in. Allow it to come in. Don't pull it in, don't block it. So it's don't, 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 don't. Don't push it out. Don't hold in reserve. Don't pull it in. Don't prevent it from coming in. It's via negativa. It's just don't do anything, and let the body breathe all by itself with no, and don't mess with it. 
Don't prefer it, don't control it, don't do anything, don't interfere, don't mess with it. The body knows how to breathe better than you do, and it always has. That's why deep sleep is so restorative, because you're out of the way. You know, like if the body, if we anthropomorphize the body, the body would say, thank goodness she's asleep. Now you can repair all the damage you did for the last 18 hours. Don't wake up, please, I got a lot of work to do, stupid. You know, and then the body in this deep sleep cycle, you know, the very shallow breathing, the growth hormones, I mean, it's really, really good, but we need that deep sleep. But we can't even be dreaming, because we're dreaming, we're going through all that same old neurotic nonsense that we do in the waking state, and we're screwing up the nervous system even in our dreams. Interesting point? Want to know an interesting point? Hold your breath in a dream. Inside the dream, hold your breath. Your body holds its breath, too. Interesting point. Look to the left, look to the right in a dream. You probably know that one. If you're within a dream, looking to the left and right, your eyeballs in your head are actually going tracking left and right as well. But I only recently learned, actually, the breath as well. So if you're getting all stressed out and anxious and angry and upset and craving and so forth in the dream, you're screwing up your nervous system just as much as you do during the daytime. But that's not helpful. We really need that time, that downtime, when the mind simply dissolves into the substrate consciousness. Hallelujah, it does that on its own without having achieved shamatha. It happens every time you fall into dreamless sleep. Into the substrate. It's cloaked in dullness, so you don't get the bliss and all of that. But at least you get a bit of time out. And then the body can restore itself, and you wake up fresh, you know, and a good night's sleep. So there it is. That's what I'd really emphasize here. This settling the respiration in its natural state, it's, it's magic. Magic, not in any kind of supernatural or occult way, but as they, you know, they speak of the miracles of modern medicine. Well, this is one of the miracles of the body. Learn how to do that. Master it. And then don't just do it when you're on the meditation cushion. Do it in between sessions. As much as possible. Now you've got, we, all of us have so few demands on our time for eight weeks. You know, throughout the course of the day, as much as possible. Whether you're walking, you're standing, you're sitting. Even if you're reading. If you're reading, that as much as you can, let that breath flow unimpededly. Let the breath, let that be your habit, that you're breathing in a healthy fashion, hours and hours a day. And while you're meditating, that's all you're doing, is just learning how to breathe, you know, and undoing all the old habits. I saw a lecture years ago, I only saw it on a video, it was at Stanford, some professor, and he's speaking to a large audience, three or four hundred people. And he said, oh, okay, I'd like to do a little experiment with you all. Please, everybody, bring out your smartphones, check your email. So, <laughs> out comes 300 smartphones, and everybody's going, click, 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 click. And he said, okay, now retrospectively, note, I bet you're holding your breath. Yeah. People are holding their breath when they're checking the email. Bad idea. Do you think the nomads out there in eastern Tibet, when they're watching their yaks, are going, <laughs> I don't think so, you know. No, it's, it's a new habit. We do that when we get frightened. We, that, that's, that's true. But of course, that's where we are. We're in this adrenaline mode of fight and flight much too common, much too often. Because we just get used to that. Playing video games, fight or flight. Watching an intense movie, fight or flight. Getting chewed up by your boss, fight or flight. Having a quarrel with a spouse, fight or flight. Your children are acting up, fight or flight. You know, we get into that mode. And then it just becomes chronic, you know, not healthy. And it does impact the breath, and the breath impacts the whole system, and it screws it all up. So we have some real remedial work to do here. And the breathing, that simple, simple practice, but subtle, of settling the respiration in its natural rhythm. Just settling in its own natural rhythm, uncontrived, unmodified, not messed with by your mind. A skill to be cultivated. Now, because I think I'd like to stop talking when we start meditating. I'm going to front load them at the next session, okay? Within the context, we're going to spend another day or two in the mindfulness of breathing mode and then gradually segue on. But in this mindfulness of breathing mode, here I strongly recommend to facilitate this, to really help you learn and get the taste of, really know what it's like when your breathing is flowing in its own natural rhythm. And you say, well, that's what it's like. This is silky, this is effortless, this is, whoa, the body's breathing and it's doing it all by itself. And it's not just doing it right, it's 
It's doing it right from breath to breath to breath. Sometimes a deep breath, sometimes it's shallow breath. Sometimes there's a pause after the out-breath. And sometimes there isn't. And sometimes the breathing is shallow, and sometimes it's deep. This is... You should have to pay for this. You know, because you're getting individual pneumatic therapy. And it's free. And your body, when you get out of the way, is giving you just what you need from breath to breath to breath. Long, short, pause, no short, shallow, deep, regular, irregular. If you're really out of the way, watch it. Don't take my word for it, what do I know? But see for yourself, especially in the supine position, what you do want, whether you're sitting or you're, or you're supine, you want, you want your body to be really mellow, really loose, otherwise this won't work. So if you're sitting upright, you want that balance, very much like this, this is good enough. So I'm really straight, but my shoulders are just relaxed, like a, like a coat on a hanger, just like that. This is all good, like that, loose. But then not like this, like this. And so you've slightly raised the sternum. Here's the sternum, this is not raised. This is raised. And then the belly, ladies especially, don't tuck it in. I think in the 1950s, 60s, tuck in the lady, tuck in the, tuck in the belly, ladies. Look slim and trim, look, and smile. You know, don't tuck it in, really bad idea. You know, jelly belly, jelly belly. Wiggle, 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 wiggle. Let it be just like like pudding. Don't worry, you're wearing your clothes and nobody's looking anyway. <laughs> so jelly belly, really soft, relaxed, loose. So there you are. And so when you're breathing in, even if the breath is really shallow, the belly comes out. If it's deep, it comes out more. And it's like, as they say, classically, it's like filling a vase with water. The sensations of the breath come down to the belly, even the lower belly expands, then the upper, then the diaphragm up here. Then this expands, and if it breath in breath is quite deep, finally the chest expands. But don't do this, like up here, chest breathing, really bad idea. That's true in the Taoist tradition, Qigong, Tai Chi, they all say the same thing. This is not good. This is tense, where you're kind of like constricted down here, only breathing up the chest. Really bad idea, not healthy. Right? And so, if you're sitting upright like that, if you're supine position, then great. Open everything up, arms out to the side, palms up, it opens up the shoulders a little bit more and then just totally going to melt down. And then just let the breathing happen. So, and the point, so all of that you've kind of heard before, but here's one more point, a kind of a nuance to mindfulness of breathing. I strongly encourage now, try practicing, see what it's like. You've heard this phrase, I've quoted now several times from Shantideva, surrendering everything at once, that's nirvana, and my mind seeks nirvana. Remember that? And so, <clears throat> as you're breathing out, and we've done this when I gave you the initial instruction, as you're breathing out, whatever thoughts, images, and so forth, just like that would be the mudra, if there were a mudra behind. It's not pushing away, it's just, just release. But now more than simply releasing thoughts and images, every time you're breathing out, just release, and they just evaporate, let them just disappear without tracking them, like that. More than that. With every out-breath, just, just give away your mind entirely. Your mind, you know, give it all away. You'll get better, you'll get it back. But give it away. And that's it. everything that has to do with your mind. Thoughts, imageries, emotions, desires, memories, fantasies, whatever. The whole bundle. Just, I don't need it right now. It's like you just put it all together. And just release your mind to the point of dissolution. Release your mind and just... Like gone. Like the materialist thing that happens at death, your mind just goes poof and there's nothing. Well, do that. 
just, just release your mind into nothing. And when you've done that, what you find out, lo and behold, is you don't pass out. You don't become, you don't become unconscious. What's left is, oh, rikpa. Awareness. That's what's left. You can't give that one away. You can fall asleep. You can you know, have the mind shrouded by dullness. Then you, you know, you're not explicitly aware of anything. But no, here you're wide awake. And you give away every activity of the mind, every aspect of the mind. You give it all away, and all that's left is just the flow of being aware. And that's enough. So do that every out-breath. It's called merging mind with space. And then as, you're, as the breath flows in, then just accentuate that awareness of awareness, like that. The mind starts to encroach again, and then and release it. Don't have it track out, 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 like it's going someplace, just... Again, that, I keep on thinking of the, of the dock on my Mac. You know, it's gone, it doesn't go like that. That's it. So lose your mind. Lose your mind with every out-breath. And all that remains is awareness. Because when you do that, awareness doesn't, you don't go, you don't go unconscious. Awareness is crystal, but it's stripped naked. Awareness is stripped naked. In other words, what you're doing is you're defrocking. You're stripping the awareness nude of all your colorations of gender, ethnicity, background, everything. Stripping your, your going naked with every object, like that. And there's just naked awareness left. And then you accentuate that during in-breath. And then when the barnacles start coming in, the clothing starts getting stripped again. Every out-breath. So that's that. Now I don't have to talk during the session. So it's mindfulness of breathing with a twist of out-breath, release the mind, dissolve the mind into space. So that's for the meditative session. Then post-meditative. We, living in modernity now, I think probably more than any other phase in human history, and we're talking like 200,000 years here, Homo sapiens sapiens, since about the time I was born, 1950 or so, post-World War II, uh, we've done something really, really weird. Unlike even before the Second World War, let alone the 19th century, 18th and back, let alone like traditional Tibet or traditional Amazon and so forth. I mean, we're not even like the same species. And that is the addiction we have to stimulation. It's really intense. I mean, it's, it's really weird. Zonamachi, one, one great Galupa master, when he, when he came to the West, translated for him a number of times, he said, Paul, oh, you people, you don't even know how to relax. It wasn't me judgmental, it's just kind of like, whoa. You don't, even, you don't even know how to relax. When there's nothing to do, you still find something to do. Even though it's completely pointless. You'll do completely pointless things just to avoid not doing anything. And I fly a lot, and boy, it's on every flight. People just killing time with solitaire, with this, this, this reading those incredibly scintillating and thought-provoking <laughs> airline magazines. <laughs> Three days in Rio de Janeiro. Rio de Janeiro. Oh, I've got to read that. You know. We have eight weeks now to break a, an addiction. So this is, a, this is not the Araluan Ar 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 retreat, it's the Araluan Mental, Rehab Mental Rehabilitation Center. <laughs> Also known as mental asylum, in case you wonder. We're here to detox, to just say no to our addiction to stimulation. So, again, for people who you know, have not been meditating for a whole long, for a long time, or not very, how do you say, comfortable in meditating many hours a day, fine, it's fine. It's reality. Not good or bad, it's reality. But what I would suggest is, Take full advantage of this time when you have so few demands in your time. What you can do at home, don't do here. You can read at home. You can read in the subway. You can read during an office break, at office during, during a coffee break. You can read then. You, you can read a lot of times. You can read when the kids are making a whole lot of noise in the next room. You can read. You know, if you came all the way out here just to read, should be staying home, listen to this on podcast. You know? So 
Reading is a really good way to kill time with the facade of it being really meaningful. Oh, no, it's Dharma, it's Dharma, it's Dharma. We can read Dharma like we can read, like we can read, like we can read a novel. I remember one Westerner coming to some Tibetan Lama, and the Lama asked a question, and the student said, oh yeah, I know that, it's in my library. And the Lama just burst in a laughter like So you've bought a lot of books, now you know a lot, right? So, what to do? What I'm saying, what I'm not is kind of like kind of pushing, 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 spend more on the cat, more, more time on the cushion, crank up those hours, you know. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is find that number of hours, the number of sessions on the cushion each day that you feel comfortable with, but also a bit pushing the envelope, not complacent, kind of pushing the envelope to get maximum benefit from this time together. But in between sessions, I see a number of doing, you're doing yoga, that's really good. Because it's bring your awareness into the body, into a non-conceptual space, not cogitating, ruminating, thinking, blah, blah, blah. It's really getting grounded, whether it's Tai Chi, it's Qigong, or walking, or bicycling. Nice. On a country road where you don't, you don't have to worry, you know, worry about getting hit. Uh, but bring your awareness into your senses. Bring it down into the senses, down into the body. Go for walks. You know, it's just one highway there. Back here, it's a lot of... Wildlife, yesterday and today I saw kangaroo, twice. And wonderful wildlife here, but it's quiet. Just get away from the road a little bit and come into your senses. Come, come out, come out wherever you are, out of your head. Come out into space, come down to your body, come to your senses. (coughs) And spend a lot of time there just mellowing out. More the lifestyle of a Tibetan nomad. Where they didn't have, they, they were basically, there was no entertainment reading in Tibet. Really, <laughs> until very recently, just almost everything that was written was Dharma. You know, a few love songs here and there, a few Chunjum Dharma histories here and there. Besides that, it was all Dharma. So it wasn't a way to kill time. You know? And of course, they had no electronics, so none of that. So really, just come back, come back to this non conceptual mode. Body, speech, and mind settling in its natural state. Let that be our main practice. Body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And do it for hours and hours a day. You can be walking, you can be sitting, you can be lying down, you can be doing yoga. But I would suggest really get out of your head. Read just enough to support the practice, but not to kill time. Because you're going right back upstairs into a whole lot of cogitation, cogitation, cogitation. There's nothing wrong with that, but then why be here? Why not be at home? You know, cogitate at home. So, really strongly encourage this kind of obsessive activity for the sake of activity. It's very, very common nowadays. Really, really common. So let's break that habit. It's not healthy. And it's certainly opposite direction from the practices here. The Mahamudra Dzogchen, opposite direction. Because Dzogchen Mahamudra is chatel, chatel, free of activity, inactivity, like that. Free of effort, like that. Jomameba, free of modification. We're not trying to do something to the mind to fix it, to repair it, to get it into shape, like that. That's the mood of what we're doing here. So let's have a whole lifestyle that is kind of supportive of that. Really relax, very yin, between yin and yang, very yin. And we're living, modernity is very, very young, massively young. Whether it's China, Singapore, Australia, America, doesn't matter, Brazil, really young. Let's get things done, get things done. And we're getting things done, we're destroying the environment. We're getting something done making the environment uninhabitable. So it's a bit crazy. So on that note now, now we can have a silent session. Merge mind with space, every out-breath, settle your respiration in this natural rhythm. Good, so find a comfortable position, please. So I'd like to cover this enormously important topic in a relatively short time. This is the first of the three uncommon preliminaries. Uncommon means these are specifically preliminary practices for the practice of Vajrayana in general, and here, of course, specifically for the practice of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. This is taken from a Dzogchen text, so 
direct preparation for Dzogchen practice. Generally, if we just stand back from it, and there are just three points, it starts out with the relationship with the Guru. And I'll say this just broadly speaking, it's very, very important. And that is for Vajrayana practice in general. And the central theme of that is you're taking the fruition as the path. I won't explain that, but you're taking the fruition of enlightenment itself and you're making that, turning that into your path uh, with the self-generation, with the pure vision, and so forth and so on. Uh, that's, general, that's Vajrayana in general, and then we have these specific practices of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Uh, to engage in any of these Vajrayana practices, for this to be meaningful and effective, then two things, a min- minimum of two, two things, but two things are utterly indispensable. And if they're not there, you're just really not prepared to do the practice. You may as well just not do it at all, because if you do it, you'll be doing it incorrectly. Okay? It doesn't matter how, even if you have fantastic samadhi and you're really smart and really good at visualizing and so forth, and you really know the rituals and all of that, uh, it's, it's all a sham, actually. You're just not doing it at all. Right? And so there are two elements. And one of these is you must have some understanding of emptiness. If you don't have understanding of emptiness, Vajrayana is just a waste of time. It's just pretending. It's like children pretending to be cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, and it's just pretending. And it may be very esoteric pretending, but it's still just pretending. And so that's not the practice. And so that must be there. And it's not just realizing, kind of as in Theravada style or Shravakayana, it's not adequate, it's not sufficient, simply to have some kind of an insight or understanding of the absence of an individual, the kansagida, the, the identity of a person, that there's no self-existent self or person in here. It's not enough. It's not enough. Not for Vajrayana. It's not enough. It's straight from His Holiness. But it's just, it's just flat out. It's, if you study, you see why this is just definitely true. Uh, it's not enough. You must also have realization of the emptiness of phenomena at large, that no phenomena exists by their own inherent nature. If you don't have that insight, if you don't have some strong conviction, not just because you believe it really strongly, but some real insight into that, then Mahamudra won't work, Dzogchen won't work, and the general state of regeneration completion, just they won't work, you know, they won't. So there's one element, and you get that with intelligence. You don't have to be brilliant, but you do need to use whatever intelligence you have to follow the investigations, the, the, whether it's the reasonings of Nakajuna or Chattikirti, Lama Mipamanabache, Gampopa, whoever it is, Milarepa, but one really needs to question the nature of appearances and challenge the notion that things really appear, exist as they appear. That's the phrase. Things don't. Any scientist, any good scientist will tell you that, and any good Majamika will tell you that. Things do not exist in the matter of faith. They appear, appearances are delusive. They will lead you to delusion very, very much like the appearances in a dream. Even a lucid dream, the appearances still lie because phenomena seem to be really there from their own side, even in a lucid dream. It's totally weird, but that's true. So that's one element. So if you don't have that, then we'll develop that ability, you know, one way or another. It has to be developed in order for Mahamudra, Dzogchen, to really be effective. That's one element. For Vajrayana, that's not enough, but it is indispensable. The second one that is indispensable is a perspective, an ascertainment, a working assumption of you and that is the intuitive affirmation, I'm choosing my words carefully, an intuitive affirmation of Dharmakaya, that when the Buddha died, he de- didn't simply go non-existent. That is, he didn't become a non-entity. And that's pretty much, that is the view. That is the view <coughs> in Theravada, Pali Canon, <coughs> generally Sravakayana. When the Buddha dies, that's it. Don't pray to him, there's, no, there's nobody listening, he's not there, he's, he's gone. Absolutely inaccessible, absolutely and forever inaccessible. So not part of your world. So some believe annihilated, they're called the annihilationists, lo and behold. Others believe in some inconceivable way, you know, the consciousness continues on, it's a debating, it's a debated point. But either way they agree that the Buddha is inaccessible, not part of your life. What the Buddha that's part of your life is a historical one who gave his teachings and that continuum carries on through the Sangha and the Dharma is your true refuge. <coughs> but the Buddha is inaccessible. There is no Dharmakaya. And so, if you believe that, then good, then follow the Shravagayana. Uh, but for Mahayana, but now again, we're really focusing on Vajrayana. This has, and again, we're, it's not a matter of reasoning or empirical evidence, you know, show me the evidence. It's again, it's, it either stirs your heart or it doesn't. It either, either resonates, it doesn't. 
If it does, okay, that's enough. But then it's not simply, okay, I believe, I'm a Mahayana, I'm a Vajrayana practitioner, I believe in Buddha nature, I believe in Dharmakaya, I believe in Rikpa, I believe in primordial consciousness. Uh, that's not enough, just like you, you know, have one more knowledge acquisition or belief acquisition. That's not, if, if it's an inert belief, then it's almost useless. No, it actually has to filter into the view, the way of viewing reality. That sense that Dharmakaya, the Buddha mind, the Buddha activity, is everywhere present. And suffusing, as it says in the Uttara Tantra, suffusing the mind stream of every sentient being. That's the working hypothesis. Not simply a matter of believing, it is, it, are you operating from that perspective? That is true. Are you betting your life on it? Okay. If that's not there, this Guru Yoga and Vajrayana in particular, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It really just doesn't make any sense. You know? And so those two elements. Now there are other things like renunciation and so forth, but they kind of go, of course, bodhicitta. I guess we have to say bodhicitta, of course. Uh, but the cognitively speaking, Bodhicitta is the only motivation, that's obvious. Cognitively speaking, in, I'm going to say again, intuitive affirmation that this is the ground state of your own awareness. It's not simply somebody else's dharmakaya. The ground state of your own awareness is your Buddha nature. Buddha nature is not merely a potential, it is the ground of your being. And it's indivisible from dharmakaya. Okay? So that's what you're working with. That's your basis. So now we turn to this Guru Yoga. I'm going to try to finish it today. I'd like to be moving on, but it's so important. And try to clear away the clutter of many ways of practicing this in a way that are either useless or really take you totally astray. So, having established, now we, here we are, having established those teachings as your foundation, those are the common preliminaries. If you want to follow a Buddhist path, there you go. That gives you an authentic motivation. Having established those teachings as your foundation, with constant devotion, offer prayers of supplication to your guru. Okay, so this it's active arousal of aspiration, of prayers, of longing. So there's your ground, kind of like in constant dialogue, offering prayers of supplication to the guru, and then outer, inner, and secret, and then outer, outwardly. Imagine your guru on the crown of your head, just visualizing him or her there. Inwardly visualize your own body as the guru. And again, I was thinking about silly ways to misinterpret this, and that is, um, you know, if you're a woman, for example, in your vision, and His Holiness is your guru, to visualize yourself as an 80-year-old man with spectacles, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You know, really, what's the point of that? I mean, he's, I mean, there he is, an 80-year-old man with spectacles, and so is that somehow supposed to be meaningful? And the answer, of course not. I mean, you might as well choose him when he's 36. And he's handsomer then. So not that. Go deeper than that. Avalokiteshvara would be a good idea. But not simply the body of a man or a woman, you know. What's the point of that? So visualize, so outwardly, visualize, inwardly visualize your guru, your body as a guru. Well, visualize, in the case of the context of this practice, your body as Avalokiteshvara. Now that makes sense. And then secretly, now we go to the core. Secretly or inward mostly, the innermost is secretly. Again and again, transfer your own vital energies, mind and consciousness, and non-dually merge them with the non-conceptual primordial consciousness of your guru's mind. This is the first point. It culminates, of course, in that third point. That's where it's really all going. Everything else is just a preparation for that. Simply doing a visualization exercise is not a big deal. Uh, visualizing your body is the, the body in the form of a, a yidam. That's kind of cool, but it's a visualization, visualization exercise, right? Some people are good at it, some people are not. But the real point there is that indivisibility, especially most centrally of your mind with that of the guru, but body, speech, and mind is what he said. Okay, but there, and this is so concise, you know, and I presume all of you, maybe at least most of you have read the much more elaborated version, something like 10 pages by Sadakondo with a common and common preliminary. She's covering the same ground, but with more words. And so the real crucial point here, which he doesn't say because it's obvious to everybody who's suitable for reading this material, is that underlying all of this, of course, is that you're viewing your guru as a Buddha. So there we go, there's the elephant in the middle of the room. You're viewing the guru as a Buddha. Now, let's imagine that you don't have 
any real genuine insight into emptiness. And you have some Tibetan Lama, it could be a Russian Lama, it could be American, Brazilian, whatever, man or woman, who cares? And you engage with this person, and this person has authentic understanding, teaching, good practitioner. You kind of evaluate, you kind of get a sense of who this person is, right? And everything about the person is telling you, not a Buddha, <laughs> not a Buddha. No 32 major marks, no 80 minor marks, no clear omniscience, keeps on asking questions, sometimes misphrases something, makes a mistake. Buddhas don't do that. So I think, not a Buddha, not a Buddha, not a Buddha. Gotcha. Not a Buddha. Oh, and I'm supposed to think you as a Buddha. Okay, well, I know you're not a Buddha, but now I'm going to pretend. This is really like looking on some man and imagining that he's Santa Claus. Imagining that he's Santa Claus. Saint Nicholas. Yeah. He's not, of course. But wouldn't it be jolly if he were? <laughs> wouldn't it be fun to think that somebody is actually Santa Claus? And he's, oh, 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 and he's going to bring you a whole bunch of presents. Blessings, you know, presents, blessings. It could be kind of fun, but it's also totally silly. Because you know it's not Santa Claus, but now you're going to pretend it's Santa Claus. Or if it's a woman, I think Tooth Fairy would be nice. Tooth Fairy. You lose a tooth, you put it under your pillow, Tooth Fairy brings you some money. It's a kind of tooth dakini. So we can look at all the women as Tooth Fairies and all the men as Santa Claus. You know, it's, it's, it's silly. So if we're reifying the guru, if we're just kind of assuming that, you know, I got this guru, I mean, I know beyond all, any shadow of a doubt, this person is not a Buddha. You look for the qualities, you know, if you've read the, Abhidhamma, the Abhisamalankara and so forth and so on, you see these, unbe I mean, not unbelievable, but incredible qualities of a Buddha. Read the Buddha's life. Look at the, the, look at the abilities he displayed. Look at his wisdom. Look at his appearance. Look at his speech. Look at, like, Wow, that's a Buddha. And then look at, you know, any lamas walking around these days, including Dingo Kenzer Rinpoche and Chade Rinpoche, Chukitichi Rinpoche, incredible Sakya Lama, Linga Rinpoche, His Holiness Dalai Lama, Kalu Rinpoche. None of them look like a Buddha. They just kind of look like old men. And that's what they were. So if we are reifying, then I would say, just, just don't do this. Just don't do it. It's just silly. Any more than, you know, Santa Claus, Buddha. Santa Claus, Buddha, Buddha, Santa Claus. Don't do it. So if there's not the understanding of eminence, just don't do this practice, because it's just delusional. It's pretending something that you're sure is not true, pretending as if you think it's true. You're being a hypocrite, and you're also doing something really stupid. And to think that's going to be somehow a skillful means for achieving enlightenment is just flat out crazy, right? So that's one point. So if one is still reifying the guru, thinking, well, the guru is not a Buddha, but imagine that it's actually a qualified guru. I mean, you can be a qualified Mahayana teacher without being a Buddha. You can be a qualified Vajrayana teacher or a qualified Dzogchen teacher without being a Buddha. If you look for the qualifications, it doesn't say, oh, by the way, you have to be a Buddha, or even you necessarily have to be a Vidyadatta. It doesn't say that. Look at the classic text. You don't have to be. I mean, it would be great. That would be optimal. But that's not a prerequisite to be a qualified teacher of Dzogchen, Mahamudra, Madhuryana, Mahayana, and so forth. It's less than that. So now that's the giveaway. That's the giveaway. The guru doesn't have to be a Buddha to be a qualified teacher of Vajrayana, and you're still invited to regard as a Buddha. So now how is that not delusional? Well, the teachings and emptiness are absolutely essential there. And if you don't have that understanding yet, then don't pretend that you do, and don't do this practice. I really say you don't do it, because it's, it's an enactment of delusion, and we already have enough of that, right? So if you're still reifying the Guru, you really have the sense the Guru is from his or her own side, not a Buddha, because all the evidence suggests that, then you have a, how do you say, mm. a backup, which is still authentic. And this one actually makes good sense if you really do have this intuitive affirmation, this faith, this confidence, this trust, intuition. Dhammakaya is real. Buddha mind is real. Blessings are still coming from the Buddha. 
There's a lot of evidence for that. So what do you do then? You slip back to Mayana mode. You don't do Vajrayana. I really, maybe I'm being really, I don't know, bad here. But don't do Vajrayana Guru Yoga if you don't have some understanding of emptiness. Don't do it. It's just stupid. Slip back to Mayana Guru Yoga. And Mayana Guru Yoga, Sutrayana, Bodhisattvayana, view the Guru as if Buddha, not as Buddha, but as if, and you're really viewing the, the, the Guru as a conduit of the blessings, the teachings of the Buddha. Like, you know, like light through a magnifying glass. So there's a, okay, there's, imagine, so imagine, Sumana, so okay, she's my guru. So she's not a guru, she's not a Buddha, but her ethics is good, her understanding is good, her motivation is pure, she's really qualified to be teaching what she's teaching, and therefore, this is as close to Dharmakaya as I get, for the time being. Because she's not getting in the way. She's not acting unethically, she's not screwing up the teachings. She's not teaching out of her mental affliction. She's not trying to exploit or manipulate me. She's not trying to get money or anything else. She's coming with pure motivation. She's teaching authentically. She's practicing as well as she can. Good enough. Then she, for me, you know, in this case, then, then I'm getting blessings of Tata through her. Or it makes it doesn't matter to be a woman. Padmasambhava, Manjushri, Buddhishakimani. That's good enough. So, no, she's still there. She's not a Buddha. She's not a Buddha. So I'm still grasping onto that. No, she's still a really good sentient being, good, good practitioner, good teacher. Not a Buddha, though. Okay, fine. She can still be a channel, a conduit, the flow of blessings. And through the Guru, you can receive blessings, and the blessings are not coming from the Guru. Blessings are coming from Dharmakaya, from Tada, Manjushri, Padmasambhava. That's the source. So then you say, who's your Guru? And your Guru, let's say, Tada. My guru is Tara, and I'm receiving blessings of Tara by way of Sumona. And I'm seeing the two as non-dual. Because when I'm looking at, at Simona, I'm looking through Simona, through her, and I'm really attending to Tara. And that's where the supplications are. Not to some person who's not a Buddha. It doesn't make any sense, really. But to make supplication to a Buddha, that makes really good sense. Infinite source of blessings, that makes really good sense. So that's without any understanding of emptiness, but you must have that intuitive affirmation of Dharmakaya, that Tada, Padmasambhava, what have you, living presence, is listening, does attend, does flow blessing. Right? Let's imagine you don't have that. You say, I don't know about this Mahayana business. I'm not sure Buddha ever taught that. I'm not sure. Maybe Buddha's just gone. Gone, gone, gone. Pada, 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 gate. Maybe toto, finito. Okay. That's okay. You don't have to believe anything here, of course. In which case, okay, you think the Buddha really just died, went into Parinirvana, totally inaccessible, blissed out and inconceivable, immutable Nirvana. That's okay, you can do that too. In which case, then when you look upon the Guru, if it's an authentic Guru, who's carrying the lineage, who really has authentic teachings, by way of the Sangha, 2,500 years of Sangha, bringing the lineage, bringing authentic teaching, practicing good ethics, good motivations, sound teachings, passed on from the dead Buddha, by the living current, the living current of Dharma, from generation to generation, very much like passing a torch, and then it dies, and you pass a torch, and then you die, pass a torch, 20, 100 generations, since the time of the Buddha, 100 generations, passing the torch, and then it comes to you, and here comes the torchbearer, the light of the Buddha, and it's all in the speech. A personality, degree of intelligence, charisma, degree of art, being articulate, and so forth and so on, yeah, it's all packaging, that's just packaging, right? What's really the Jews is the nectar of the speech. That's what's really being carried. That's your true refuge. Right? And so in that regard, okay, don't have realization of emptiness, don't really buy this business of Dharmakaya and blessings and all of that, but you still have reverence for the Buddha, the great teacher, the enlightened one. Okay, then you're Shravakayana. That's okay. That's good. Then you regard the Guru as an emissary, an emissary of the Buddha the closest you're going to get to the Buddha. Because the Buddha's long history is long, long ago. But this is as close you're going to get. Here's the continuum, like dominoes. There's your, there's your guru. And that's the lineage. And that's as close as you get. Because you can't go back in time. But here it is, that continuum, that golden thread of the teachings, the blessings of the teachings, the authenticity of the teachings coming through until there's the guru right in front of you. And this is the emissary. And you show that person the respect that you would 
for an, like, as you would for an emissary of a great nation or the great the Buddha himself. What you'll see in each of these cases, though, is that it's not focusing on the personality. It's not a personality cult. It's not focusing on the personhood, the personality, the individuality, the appearance, the way of using words, sense of humor, degree of intelligence, erudition, blah, blah, blah. You know, really, that's all superficial. It's wrapping. And so in all authentic modes of Guru Yoga, it's really not about the person as the person, the personality. Because then it becomes like a personality cult. In one finger snap, you're doing something that's diametrically opposed to Buddha Dharma, or reifying an individual focusing on the ego and saying, oh, I, I revere you, I admire you, I said, sigh. You know, missing the whole point. Missing the whole point. So we are again, we have to be speaking from the 21st century where personality cults are everywhere. In the music industry, entertainment industry, in the politics, everywhere. It's, oh, this person, oh, the rich people, oh, we're going to swim. You know. Somebody sent me something yesterday about some computer geeks, I think in the Silicon Valley, they took the, I just, I just, I was astonished. They took the, the brain waves of billionaires and other really highly successful people and Zen masters, and they kind of blended them together. And then they found a way to zap your brain so that your brain would have the brain activity of a Billionaire Zen Roshi. <laughs> In other words, somebody who doesn't even exist. And the guy who was reporting on said, this is the greatest thing I've ever experienced. And by the way, it costs $15,000 a week. <laughs> then you know it's got to be good. Yeah. This is really the trend. It's really trending. There's another article somebody sent just zapping your brain with Zen. It sounds like what I would do with a rubber band. You know. <laughs> it's all one. No. So we're, it's a very it's it's a growth industry. If you want to invest in some, invest in something, invest in one of these companies because they're doing really really well. Because people want the shortcut. So now those are ways we w oh and then if that's too much, if you don't all have that much reference reference to the Buddha, that's okay. The Buddha never said, hey, you can't listen to my Dharma teachings unless you feel reverence. He could have, but he didn't. He didn't do that ever, did he? He said, have faith in me. You don't have faith in me? Go away again. He never said that. Never once. Never once. He just offered the teachings. So if you don't have deep reverence for the Buddha, that's okay. Then regard the teacher as a spiritual friend. The guru as a spiritual friend. A friend who's here to help you on your spiritual path. And that's true. That's true for me. I'm offering my spiritual friendship. And that's it. Here to help you in your path. If I can't help you, then it's okay. That's it. So simple. So there we go. So now we have something sane all the way up and all the way down. Spiritual friend, that's sane and it's meaningful. Emissary of the Buddha, that's sane and it's more meaningful. Here's a conduit of the blessings of Dharmakaya. That's even more meaningful. But if we're going to go, and I'm not going to finish this today. I'm not going to try to squeeze the right way in one minute. <laughs> I'm fast, but I'm not that fast. And so tomorrow, let's look into it. And I can be pretty brief. But I'll put it simply put. No, yeah, I'm going to, just a teaser, there's more. Because the whole point is, why are we doing this at all? Really, we should be asking that question. Is this basically just one more power trip of religions? Because they've been doing this forever. Churches and power and structure and hierarchy and manipulation and control the masses and squeeze those highs out of them, squeeze the money out of them and so forth. I mean, we know that's kind of crap has been going on for centuries. And it's not just the Roman Catholic Church or the Muslims or the Jews, it's the Buddhists and the Hindus. You know, money and power and religion, I mean, they really, they've been doing this for a long time. The Kagyubas do it, the Galupas do it, church and state, church and state. So we know that's an, an issue. Is that's what's really going on behind Guru Yoga? Well, no. That's the, that's the answer. Uh, can it be? Sure. Are there gurus that have manipulated, exploited their students? Have there, are there sex monasteries that exploit? Of course, of course, of course. But just throw all that out, because that's garbage. And then there's Buddha Dharma. There's garbage, throw the garbage out. What's left is Buddha Dharma. There's no garbage there at all. And the Guru Yoga is entirely for the sake of the disciple. Entirely for the sake of the disciple. That's it. 
I mean, really, I just said it. The Guru Yoga is for the sake of the disciple. And so, as we attend to the Guru, what comes to mind is what we paint. I'm not saying we make it up, but I am saying whatever our perception, whether it's this only Dalai Lama, Tengu Kensa Rinpoche, Lama you studied with, the person sitting here, whatever is coming to mind, we're painting it, and we're each painting it with our own palette of colors. And if you've never realized Rikpa, then you'll not be able to imagine your guru who has. If you've not realized Bodhicitta, you'll not be able to imagine your guru who has. If you've not realized emptiness, you'll not be able to imagine your guru has. Because the guru is painted with colors you don't have in your palette. You will paint the guru with the colors in your palette which means he's going to be in a glorified approximation of yourself. <laughs> right? Interesting. But it's true. And that goes for everybody else. We're painting the world with the colors from our own palette. I'm not saying there aren't other sentient beings. I'm not saying that, that some, some lamas have tremendous realization, others don't, that some are actually Buddhas and some are not. No, of course that's true. But in terms of the Guru appearing to us and how we perceive and how we assess, make sense of the Guru, we're perceiving in terms of our perceptions, we're assessing in terms of our palette, our concepts. And therefore it's a construct. Therefore it's a construct. And what, is, what has been constructed can be unconstructed and dissolve back into emptiness, dissolve back into Buddha nature. And that's where your Guru is, in the Buddha nature in the deconstruction, what's left, when you deconstruct all that you've constructed, what's left is emptiness and Buddha nature, and they're indivisible. That is your guru. It's not even the form of Padmasambhava. You want to worship a form? It's just a form. It's just an appearance. It's colors. It's drawing. Is that your refuge? A drawing? Or some guy holding a flaming sword? Is that the refuge? Don't think so. The refuge is this Dhammadhatu, this ultimate reality, emptiness, indivisible from Buddha mind. That's the refuge. That's the nature of your own awareness. That's your refuge. And all of the Guru Yoga is designed to enable, to enable you to ascertain that and to realize that is who you've always been. That's the point of Guru Yoga. That's that. So it's dinner time. <laughs> and we'll look into a bit more details tomorrow. But it's so important. I would suggest either, with Guru Yoga, either do it right or don't do it at all. Really. Because people screw up so much. It happens so frequently, especially coming up out of our individualistic, uh, you know, society. Uh, it's so easy to mess it up. So spiritual friend, that's safe. Emissary of the Buddha, deeper. As if Buddha, conduit, even better. Guru as Buddha, incredibly powerful but only if it's done authentically. It's not enough. If it's not done authentically, don't do it at all, please. Okay. That's all. See you tomorrow for part two. Part two will be Guru Yoga tomorrow.